This is Aaron Harris, and you are tuning into the Football Odyssey. Hope everyone has been enjoying the NFL playoffs thus far, and I'm sure you all are excited about the upcoming championship games like I am. But today, we have a conversation about the not-too-distant past with author Chuck Klosterman. Today, Chuck joins me for a wide-ranging discussion revolving around his newest book, The 90s. We also dive into several topics related to football in the 90s, including how athletes from the past prepare in today's game, the O.J. Simpson trial, NFL Europe, how the BCS changed college football, the essence of football, and much more. With that said, thank you all for listening, and now enjoy the show. And we are rolling. Okay, Chuck Klosterman, thank you for joining the show today. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Absolutely. So like I mentioned, I was a huge fan of the book, The 90s, and the uh, paperback version is coming out at the end of the month, correct? Uh, yeah, I think it's uh, January 31st, I believe, is the day it comes out yeah, in paperback. Do you prefer... Oh, Go ahead. Well, it's just weird now because, like, you know, places like Amazon, they cut the price of books down so low that sometimes the soft cover will come out and it will be, like, the exact same price as the hardcover. It's very strange. Uh, but uh, I, I, I actually prefer soft cover books in general. I think they're easier to read and carry and stuff. I, I will wait a year for a book to come out in soft cover, which is a strange thing to admit as a writer, but it's true. Well, there feels something good about like being able to bend it. You know, like when you see a book that's worn, I mean, obviously hardcover books can get worn too, but there's something about like having that crease in the pages just feel like they're flimsy. That kind of makes it feel like you accomplished something. Plus, if you have a hardcover book, you feel like you got to protect it in some way. Like mm-hmm. it seems, you know, because they're expensive and it seems odd to just kind of toss it around. A softcover book, if it gets destroyed, the world isn't over. You just get another one, you know. The thing that's cool about your book is that, you know, I think when a lot of people write history books, oftentimes they didn't live through that period of history. Whereas with you, you lived through the 90s. And at a certain point, I think at the end, you dedicated the book or you thank a lot of the people that you met throughout the 90s. Um, So for someone like you, I was curious, when you're writing a book about a decade that you lived through, I mean, how much of your research and your writing process is you balancing out like what you observed at the time versus what you observe in retrospect? That's a great question, because in some ways it is, I don't know if easier is the right word, but less complicated to do a book, say, about the 1890s, where it's like no one had the experience. So all we have is sort of the historical record. Most people who read this book, not all, but most have some vague memory of the 90s. OK, either they either it was like, you know, a key point of their young adulthood or who they were as a high school kid. Or they were already an adult and they remember it just sort of as an extension of the 70s and the 80s. So, you know, what I really was focused on was not having this book be some sort of a reflection of my actual experience. I had written books in the past earlier in my career, Sex, Drugs, and Cocoa Puffs, and Eating a Dinosaur, you know, even Killing Yourself to Live. In a lot of ways, those are books about the 90s to a degree, but they were the experiences that I specifically had. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I would talk about things in the culture through the prism of my life. And this isn't like that as much. Uh, certainly, I remembered a lot of the things I wrote about. Uh, but what I would do is kind of take my memory and then compare it to sources to see how close it was. Like, it is the way that I sort of recalled this event accurate or was 
you know, it, it just sort of warped by my own life at the time. And about half the time it was right. And about half the time it was wrong. I mean, I, it, I, I do think that there's a real advantage to having lived through a period you're writing about historically. I mean, my hope was that this would not be a book that would feel as though it was an explanation of a time period as told through the way we think about the world now. Cause that's often happens with like contemporary history. It's like people look back at a time and they sort of use the eyes that they have in the present day. In mm -hmm. other words, they look at everything uh, through the meaning of the culture as it is right now. What I was hoping to do, and maybe I succeeded, maybe I didn't, was try to write a book that felt the way the 90s actually were. That it was not an attempt to reinvent our understanding of that period, but to understand uh, sort of the the world that we, for the most part, generally accept to be what that period was like. Now, it wasn't that way for any one person. No time is. But uh, that this is like a, a, a less personal book in a lot of ways. But I guess I still wrote it, so it's still me. Right. Well, I was only alive for five years in the 90s, but I have a sister who's eight years older than I am. So a lot of the things you wrote about, I could understand vicariously through her, at least looking back. Um, but something that I thought was interesting that became apparent to me as I was reading it, that it felt like in the 90s, people didn't really have the need for clarity that we have now. Am I correct in, in inferring that as a common theme throughout the book? Well, it is, although here again, not consciously at the time there was no one in the 90s saying like yeah it doesn't really matter if we know things or we don't all information is the same it only seems that way and was that way when we understand uh how much the world has changed um you know uh, like one thing that i just mentioned early in the book and it's no brilliant insight but it's true it's like if if people were sitting around a table at the bar and they were talking about some world event and there seemed to be a consensus at the table about what the reality was that became a kind of reality. The idea that somebody could just suddenly pull their phone out and, and you know, check the date on something or check the information on something, uh, you know, that, that not only was it not done, there was really no comprehension of that. So it was a softer kind of form of reality. You know, uh, just because this is a football podcast, I remember when I worked at the, e the Akron Beacon Journal from 1998 to 2002. And one thing that would happen, you know, that just seems crazy now, but it happened all the time. If you were in there on a Saturday afternoon and you walked by the sports department, you would see sports reporters picking up the phone from random people calling to ask, like, who won the Marshall uh, Colorado State game? Like, they, they had no way of knowing this until that, that, that would come on the news or whatever, and they couldn't wait. I mean, it was you could care about something and have absolutely no way to access it. And that, of course, changed the way you perceive the event itself, you know? Well, it's kind of weird, though, because it feels like today there's almost like the Marshall McLuhan reversal, right, where there's like so much information overload that there's very few things if you want to find a solid information on that you're going to have to you know, mine through, you know, just piles and piles of pages and information to kind of find what you're looking for. Well, yeah, I mean, you look at McLuhan, he's like, you know, the medium is the message. I mean, that's just something that becomes more and more true. If we're discussing 
um, an issue that's being, uh, you know, say debated on Twitter, we're really talking about Twitter. We're not really talking about the debate. We're talking about the nature of how ideas are expressed in this specific medium. And there is a sense that the, the, there are understanding of what we're learning about isn't so much a one-to-one -one view of the event, but this is how uh, people in this world are going to interpret the meaning and kind of triangulate how we're supposed to understand it. We're really talking about what we're reading about more so than the content that is there. Yeah, yeah that's interesting because for me, one of the biggest things I took away from the book or something that I really indulged in was Art Bell's radio show, Coast to Coast AM. Uh -huh. And for me, it's been great because like I, he obviously has one of the best radio voices going, you know, in the history of the medium, but it's really great to have people call in and, you know, talk about even, even aside from the paranormal aspect of a show, just about maybe even current events throughout the day, just listening to the way people uh, talk. And it's just fascinating going back to sort of that question of clarity. It's like, you know, you're using that medium. What people say back then for talk radio was like the heartbeat of America to kind of figure out like what people um, were thinking and talking about at that time, you know? Well, and, you know, Art Bell is an example of a radio show that we now sort of view, or even at the time, I guess, understood as a collection of conspiracy theorists. Mm -hmm. But was different about that period was by calling the art bell show or even listening to it you were almost openly admitting your separation from most of society you were saying i am partaking in something that i know would never even be discussed in a newspaper not taken seriously in a newspaper even discussed at all um and now that of course has completely changed mm -hmm. where now we sort of ex uh, not just accept but assume that mainstream news is going to have elements of conspiracy theory thinking, you know, whereas Art Bell was sort of like, okay, this is for us a silo separate from a world that we do not believe is real. And all those other people are kind of, are like kind of sheep following this, but we are outside of that and we accept that. And that, that's not how it is now. You know, that's a, and people think that's terrible. I think for the most part, it's just different. You know? Yeah. Well, and plus the conversation obviously around technology today has a lot of people that yearn for, you know, the good old days of the nineties, because it seems like that was like the last decade where that kind of like didn't have like the same pace of acceleration maybe as today when it comes to technology and information. And I think people like across multiple generations feel that way too. I mean, I'm 28 years old, but you know, some days it's kind of cool to think back when I would just, you know, watch Power Rangers and play Super Nintendo and, you know, it'd be really part of the last generation that didn't have an iPhone to like have as an accessory, you know? Sure. But here's the thing. Throughout the nineties, all we discussed was the acceleration of culture. Like nobody thought that culture was moving too slow. That was never something somebody in 1996 was saying that never happened, right? The idea was that, I mean, like the book Generation X, like the subtitle is like Tales from an Accelerated Culture. This, that was, I mean, I, I don't know how many times as a journalist I used that exact phrase. There was this idea that, oh, we have all this, you know, proliferation of cable now and there's all these magazines. Oh, and television can be on 24 hours a day now. It doesn't sign off. That this was somehow speeding things up. Now it is, you know, then when the internet enters, it seems as though like we've, you know, like hit some kind of turbo booster and it's just kind of rocketing out of control. 
and yet something else is happening that is maybe even weirder and, and more unexpected. Because of the internet, we now have access to sort of the culture from all of the 20th century all at the same time. And anyone can go back to any period and, and investigate anything, any old song, any old film, any old television show. There is nothing though, sort of that leaves the culture. And the sort of paradoxical consequence of this is that in some ways the acceleration of culture has slowed down. And everything now, everything new is to some degree retro because it's there, there was a, a, a long stretch where the Nate kind of the natural trajectory of moving through time caused things to disappear. Something would be popular in 1973, and by 1977, it would essentially be gone entirely. And there's nothing like that now, mm. which is why when you look at the culture of 2023, when you see what's on television, when you listen to new music, when you see film, it seems oddly connected to the beginning of the 21st century. It doesn't seem nearly as distant as, say, 1960 seemed from 1980. Yeah. And and that's uh, I, I don't I don't know what that tells us. And it's interesting because sports can kind of operate outside of that because sports is sort of its own kind of uh, kind of specialized world. You know? Well, even then, I mean, it's almost like it kind of creates like this sense of future shock, except there's still like a historical lineage there. You know, I mean, to kind of like reframe around football, I guess, you know, like because of YouTube, I can watch any game, any newsreel or not any, but a lot from like the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, you know, even the newsreels going back to the 30s and 40s. Well, if you look at like some of like uh, TCU's plays from 1950 with Dutch Meyer, you know, they're running a spread offense and it would not look unrecognizable today. So it's like kind of cool how like that what's old is new can be looked at through the prism of an internet that can preserve that history. Oh, I mean, that, that has absolutely happened. I mean, from, uh, I mean, I think even like, like Doug Peterson, I think recently said this, he's like, Twitter is the best thing he's ever found for finding new plays because, you know, somebody like Gus Malzahn or whatever, when he was in high school and he was, you know, changing, uh, kind of, you know, bringing kind of a new philosophy of offensive football. Like if you weren't from there, you had to wait five years till a book got written. I mean, it wasn't so, you know, it, it, these were hard things sort of to access. Um, now you have the, you know, the complete sort of, uh, you know, the, the expanse of time and anything can be investigated. I mean, I, I often think about like, you know, I, I spend a lot of time thinking about the evolution of football. And, you know, you think about things that have disappeared, essentially, like eye formation, particularly the power eye, right? You don't see anyone running the power eye anymore. Right. Uh, and when you think about it, the limitations of the power eye are pretty obvious. You know, you have a fullback who can only go through really one of two holes. You have your wingback who's tight in for blocking, and he can't really, he, could, he can take, say, if you have power eye right, you could give him the ball going left. You can't really give him the ball going right. He can only block. Um, your tailback is in a good position, but he's, you've got all these guys down the middle, you know, the middle of the field, and you're not really using the, the horizontal nature of the game. And yet that wasn't real popular for a whole bunch of years because if a team was successful doing it, not because of the offense, probably because of the personnel, mm -hmm. it just sort of became standard, you know? And now you don't see that as much. You know, when they always talk about, you know, the NFL, like being a copycat league, there is some truth in that, but the copying and the discarding of these things happens much faster. 
Yeah, well, about a year and a half ago, I guess, I interviewed Dan Fouts on the show. And they used to have this play later on in his career that was run out of the power eye where he would hand off to the fullback. It wasn't a traditional fullback. It was like Buford McGee or one of the backup running backs. And then he would pitch it out to um, uh, Lionel James or he would take it and keep it himself. So it's like a new wrinkle that they kind of you know incorporated back into their offense for especially for an Eric Coriel offense that was known for just launching the ball downfield. So it, it is cool how it's like if you have the personnel and the timing maybe in some ways is right that you can kind of incorporate it into your scheme to to some extent. Well, no, I, when I'd written Eating the Dinosaur, this is like 2010 or 2011, I have a whole essay on football. And at the time, as I was writing that, like the read option was everything. Like you couldn't watch a college football game without seeing a team run the read option. Um, it, it seemed to be the almost the totality. Like you'd watch West Virginia or something. It seemed like they were running some version of that uh, on on, it, on every rundown, you know. And there's still some of it, but it's not there. At this, you know, it's it's sort of like kind of one tool in the in the in the toolbox. Nobody uses it exclusively. I I just always thought this is an interesting thing watching this progression because we you know we we think of football and we sort of understand football as a somewhat kind of conservative reactionary thing. It tends to appeal to a kind of conservative mindset. And yet it is probably more progressive than any other sport that we have any major sport in the sense that um, both from a kind of a rulemaking position, but particularly from like an offensive and defensive position, it is changing constantly. Like it, 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 it will embrace any new idea almost instantly, whereas like a sport like baseball and soccer does not. Right. Yeah. Well, and that progression, too, kind of brings me to how I actually first became aware of you, because whenever I was in high school, I was watching the NFL Network's top uh, 100 players of all time, and you were doing the introduction for Jack Lambert. And what's interesting about him to me is like, obviously, everybody knows how intense he is. And you brought up that, you know, even though he probably wasn't the best player at his position on that defense, like, you know, Jack uh, Ham was probably a better outside backer than Ham was or uh, Lambert was a middle backer, but he had that ferocious look to him. But it's interesting, too, like how, like, I guess in the lineage of the middle linebacker, he was sort of like the pivotal um, he, he was like the turning point for that position where you needed an athlete if you were going to run certain coverages. Well, you know, Lambert was really tall, at least for the time. He wasn't very heavy. Um, and uh, that gave him sort of a, an interesting kind of advantage because I think it, you know, that, that the thinking at the time sort of was a player his height in college would probably have been moved to defensive end. Mm -hmm. You know, the idea of someone like Too Tall Jones or whatever, that was an ideal dream or whatever, like a, a big, uh, you know, edge rusher who will, you know, uh, kind of stop the quarterback basically from looking downfield. But he, you know, he played middle linebacker because he had, you know, great lateral movement. Uh, it was a, I mean, that whole doing that, that I was really honored they asked me to do that, to like do those intros for the, for the 100 best players. And I mean, the, the person they asked me about first was Roger Staubach because he had been my hero growing up and I had talked a lot at different places about Roger Staubach. So they had me do that. Then they kind of showed me the list of the other guys and there was like anybody else uh, you want to do. And I was like, well, I, I like uh, Jack Lambert. I have thoughts on that. And then they were like, nobody wants to do OJ. <laughs> like <laughs> everyone's afraid to do OJ Simpson. I was like, well, I'll do that. That's great. You know? So, um, so I'm, I'm always happy when that, whenever they replay that, although I suppose they don't now because, um, that list in a way is always changing. I mean, now like these canonical lists 
of the 100 greatest players or the 25 greatest quarterbacks. Um, they're almost now similar to how lists are, say, for like Rolling Stone magazine about like the 100 greatest albums or whatever. Right. The thinking about what makes a great album keeps changing. So the list changes. The thinking what makes a, a great football player keeps changing. Like I was, I was recently talking to someone just speaking in the 90s, like we were talking about the best NFL players of the 90s. And I was like, well, the best NFL player of the 90s was Jerry Rice. And, you know, he's probably the best player of all time, actually. You know, if we, if we really, when you, when you look at his distance between every other but person who plays his position and the longevity of his career and all that. But then the other person made a point. It's like, I, I, I don't know if you can argue that a wide receiver is the best player of all time because we now understand that the position of quarterback matters so much more. Um, that, you know, it would be uh, if, if someone said you can have the best receiver in the game or one of the five best quarterbacks, what would you take? I think most people would take the second category. So um, uh, it, uh, it's it's I was just glad I was able to do it once, I guess. The, the year that the, the year they did this, I got to be on it. Yeah, I, I, I think there are some positions that will always stand the test of time, though. Like, I mean, I think Lawrence Taylor was number three on that list. And I, I think if you were to do that list today, he would probably stay at number three. I guess you would maybe make the argument of Tom Brady being number one, Bryce number two. And maybe because of how the running back position has kind of changed in terms of its dependency and its importance, Brown may be in the top five, but not at number two where he was. Well, it's it's a kind of an interesting thing with Jim Brown, uh, in the sense, in, you know, that that uh, there are these guys uh, in every sport who uh, you know, transcend the game in a way, in that they become almost immovable. Mm. Um, I think Lawrence Taylor might be in that category as well. That uh, a line to, for a, for an outside linebacker to be seen as better than Lawrence Taylor going forward. And I, you know, since he retired, I don't think anybody would argue that there's been a better linebacker since him. For someone to sort of usurp his position, uh, it can't just be that the player is, you know, physically more imposing, or uh, you know, uh, is technically more skilled. They have to play for a long time. They have to do very memorable things, and they almost have to replace the memory of what Lawrence Taylor means. And I mean, that seems like a strange thing to say, but like what I'm saying, they have to replace the, the, the memory of somebody who really has a strong desire to feel as though they watch the best defensive player of all time. Uh, you know, if, if you line up Jerry Rice at his best and Randy Moss at his best, Moss is better. I mean, he's faster. His hands are just as good. Um, it, it, it seems as though it, it, it's a that that if you're kind of like building the perfect receiver, that's what you build. But Rice did it longer; he did it in more important games, and, and, you know. And he kind of defined the kind of player that Randy Moss could potentially become. Mm -hmm. that, that's that's always a big part of the ranking of anything. Like I I often use the example of U.S. presidents. We can't really have a, a new president who's better than George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, uh, you know, Thomas Jefferson, any of these things, because those guys, Washington in particular, and Lincoln, define what the idea of a good president is. 
True. So if someone is a great president now, what they're what they're basically being is they're being Washingtonian. They're at they're 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 almost doing what you know. It's like the Beatles. It's like it's there can't be a better rock band than the Beatles because every rock band is attempting to be the Beatles. Right. Well, and it feels also too like in a hyperbolic era that we live in. It's hard maybe to and to put a stoic view on just someone's place in history. Right. I mean, it kind of feels like if if you're Whoever goes and wins the Super Bowl right now, right? Like, say, if it's Brock Purdy. I mean, people have already compared him to Tom Brady. You know, if he goes ahead and wins, he the next Tom Brady. You know, is he on that same trajectory, that same course? When in reality, you know, it could very well be that maybe he just struck lightning in a bottle with a really good time, and then a couple of years from now, he's not really doing well. I mean, it's possible that that is true with Purdy. I mean, we've seen, what, eight games now, I think. You know, mm-hmm. and it's remarkable that he hasn't played poorly once in these eight games. I think that the person who seems to be doing the most um, to sort of potentially have a Tom Brady-like impact is Joe Burrow. Absolutely. But but it's going to be hard to imagine him playing that long. I mean, unless it just becomes normal. I mean, both Tom Brady and LeBron are sort of shifting this idea of how long pro athletes play for, um, you know, in, in the sense that they've played not, not just so long, but like pretty high level, you know, deep in their career. You know, do we now look at a guy like Joe Burrow and say, like, well, he might play 18 seasons? Mm-hmm. I mean, that that would that would have been an unrealistic thing to 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 say about, you know, talking about Dan Fouts. I mean, Dan Fouts comes out of Oregon. There was no way that he thought to himself, "I wonder if I could have like a you know 20 year career in the NFL." No one did that. Uh, the idea was you wanted to get to five years because that would vest you for all your pensions and all that stuff. But do, do you think someone would have to play as long as like a LeBron or a Brady to have to you know, challenge that legacy of them being the best in their own sport? Like say hypothetically, if Joe Burrow, you know, over the course of a 14 year career wins five Super Bowls, would there be a legitimate argument that he is actually better than Brady was? Uh, I think so, for sure. You know, um, like I, uh, you know, like, okay, like with LeBron, for example, like, it, this is basketball, but like, what does LeBron need to do in order for most people to uh, to stop viewing him as uh, at best equal to Jordan? Like, how how can he pass Jordan in the minds of most people? There are certainly people now who say LeBron is better than Jordan, but for the most part, Jordan is still sort of used as uh, kind of the template. What happened? The, the, the switch is when the guy. Uh, you're using as the example uh, who's being overturned mm-hmm. is no longer there. Like as long as we say like, can is LeBron better than Jordan? It means Jordan is still in the minds of most people the greatest player. For a time when it was Jordan and Russell, uh, that it was sort of like, well, Bill Russell was still the best player of all time because he was always the thing we were comparing Jordan against. But at some point that stopped. Mm-hmm. It's going to be hard to imagine. Uh, us stopping the comparison LeBron the, of the you know, the LeBron Jordan thing, unless LeBron just keeps playing to a point where, you know, he obviously will have the scoring record, but he, if, if he, you know, if he plays so long that there are people, you know, and I guess this is already the case who, who have no memory of Jordan and no memory of LeBron not being great. Right. You know, like they, like they, they, they missed the first one. And they've never uh, had any memory outside of LeBron being the center of the basketball culture or whatever. Maybe, maybe that's when it switches. I mean, football is obviously harder for this because 
you know the the positions are much more uh, are much more specific yeah and you know and we, we look at the quarterback now as being so much more meaningful and justifiably so or whatever but like it's you know how good would a strong safety need to be to be the greatest player of all time i don't know what would have to happen for that you know well, and plus, too, it's like, I mean, going back to the progression in the different eras, right? Like a quarterback in a single wing offense back in the 40s wasn't even the main ball handler. You know, he was more of a glorified guard that would take it like on a buck lateral or something like mm. that. You know, a tailback back then would, you know, had just as many passing yards in a game as he would rushing yards, whereas today that's not happening, you know? Yeah. Well, yeah. It, it, well, I mean, I mean, it's really good, hard when you get back. I mean, I it's. Like, uh, I, I was pretty surprised to see that, like, Sammy Baugh's punting record. I don't know if, yeah. if, that, if that was – was it eclipsed this year or did, did the guy end up having a, a – I don't know if it was – I don't know if it was eclipsed. I mean, because that's actually, like, a different ball. He's, like, mm-hmm. taking a different ball at the time. See, you know, the way it's inflated or whatever. So you get back at that period, it's, you know, and he's playing both ways and it's just really strange. It's like, how do we kind of factor that in? I mean, whenever we go back – to players from the past i and i this is something that i uh, i love thinking about and it's like i love talking about it it's like you know there's always this temptation to take the player today and just like put him back in time right and as a consequence it seems that every player today is great that if you took christian mccaffrey and you put him back to 1962 mm-hmm. it's like he's just a, this unstoppable running back he probably rushes for 2500 yards and all these things um but you can't you can't do that, right? You have to assume that the player from the past has the advantages of the players of today. And the player from today has the limitations of the players from the past. So mm-hmm. like one thing you really notice uh, is that there was a, I mean, I bet even like you said you were, you were born in 95 or 94, okay? 94. Okay. You know, when say, um, Oh, anytime there was a, you know, a quarterback coming out of college, the idea of him starting as a rookie and being effective, that was extraordinarily rare. Like even when like Roethlisberger took the Steelers to the Super Bowl against the Seahawks, that was still, you know, that's not that long ago, but it was still like, it was surprising to people that somebody could come out of a college, especially a smaller college and immediately sort of contribute in that way. You know, when you look at like when John Elway was a rookie, like, you know, he struggled like, mm. you know, really like a lot of these canonical guys really struggled. But now, you know, you have these guys going to seven on seven passing camps in eighth grade. Yeah. And they're going to these camps where it's just, they're all scheme oriented. So, you know, it's like they're 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 seeing, you know, they're, they're basically seeing routes and seeing coverages that you would see, you know, in the past, you never see unless you played, you know, you were a senior in college or whatever. So these guys have this acceleration of experience that allows them to be effective much earlier in their career. Um, it, it, it is interesting. You know, I mentioned Roger Staubach before. It's like, you know, here's a guy, not only did he not have any of those advantages, but like went to Vietnam for two years or whatever <laughs> yeah. and came back. But like, it's hard to, to sort of think to you. It's like, well, okay, let's, let's put him in this different world. You know, let's also put him in the world where it's like, he doesn't play football, basketball, and baseball, which everyone used to do if they were that kind of guy. If you were the quarterback, you were usually the shortstop and you were usually the point guard. That was kind of how it worked. Yeah. Now everyone specializes. So you can sort of build yourself to be this one specific kind of player. Um, it, it is interesting, you know, like to imagine that, you know, 
instead of playing lacrosse, Jim Brown plays spring football or whatever. Like these things yeah. would have helped him, you know. But yeah. yeah, I mean that that is something that I kind of use as like a counter argument when they say, well, they just weren't as fast or as strong. But it's like they didn't have full time training staffs. They didn't train year round. I mean, I feel like if they had the resources that we had today for the modern athlete, they could definitely compete. And conversely, I mean, you, you bring it up, you know, McCaffrey in nineteen sixty two, would he succeed? I mean, I, I don't know. Could he succeed playing in like a split back offense? I mean, we never see well, that. He never plays in it. So it's like, how well could he do? I think he could probably succeed in a split back offense. Could he succeed spending his whole off season selling ice? <laughs> like what Red Grange would have to do, you know? Yeah. I mean, there's a, I, I'm not, not to cross sports, but like, you know, there's a, I, there's a book, uh, I can't remember the title of it now. It's about Bill Russell and Bob Cousy. And Bob Cousy was the first NBA player uh, to, to lead the players union. You know? mm -hmm. And it lists in there like what the demands were for the NBA union, the first like in the you know in early 60s or whatever. It was things like if you ride on a train for more than 24 consecutive hours, you have to have at least six hours off before the game happens. Or like if uh, you need to have at least seven dollars a day for food, like these, like and it's just crazy to think that that's like what it was like to be a, a pro athlete in that time. But that's how it was. I mean, you just look at the shoes. I mean, the shoes that guys wear today. If we just transport the shoes back to the 1974 New England Patriots, mm -hmm. they probably dominate the AFC East because of them. You know, it's like these. There are so many things about the culture that change, but. We, we don't want to add in these other things when we have this conversation. We just want to like transport, uh, you know, uh, you know, you know, take whoever, you know, take a, uh, take Purdy and just like move him back in time and like place him like it's like a like a time machine scenario. But the, we got to use a time machine for all of culture for this to work. You know? Yeah, sure. So to sort of pivot back to the 90s, obviously you can't talk about the 90s without talking about OJ. And you mentioned earlier that you had given his um, introduction for the NFL Top 100. Uh, and obviously like going just based on what you said about the producer having some trepidation or trying to find someone to talk about it. I, do you think that obviously what happened with uh, the murders and the trial you know, prevents people from listing him as maybe the greatest running back of all time? Okay, that's a that's a, first of all, I would say he is not the greatest running back of all time, but he was the greatest running back of the seventies. Mm -hmm. um, Walter Payton comes into the league late in the seventies, and 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 you know, you could you could probably make a case for him. Although in many ways, he was as much an eighties player as a seventies player. Um, the main thing about OJ is that it just it seems very strange to people to talk about him as a football player. Like, it just seems weird for someone to be like, well, you know, at USC, they ran, you know, and then they had the Bills. Like, they, they're like, well, when are you going to mention that, like, he killed these people? Uh, and it's just, you know, it's, it's a strange deal. Uh, uh, I think it, the main, I don't think it was that people were like, you know, afraid to, you know, like, I don't think the opinion of him as a player has necessarily eroded. Mm -hmm. I think that people think like, well, uh, it says something about me. I don't want to be perceived as an OJ Simpson fan, you right. know? Um, uh, but it's, I'm just the kind of person who can separate those things. I mean, that was a very, you know, I talk about like, you know, kind of like Gen X caricatures and all that stuff. And I was kind of a Gen X caricature, but one of the cliches about being a Gen, Gen X person is that we were always sort of almost socialized to, 
separate like the art from the artist to like, you know, can you look at this individual and what they do as a football player or a musician or a director or whatever, and not sort of let your opinion of them as a person infiltrate, uh, you know, your objective ability to sort of understand what they did uh, in their idiom of, of whatever. I mean, now it's completely flopped. Now right. you're supposed to, you're supposed to do that. Like it's, it, it, people lose their mind. It's like, if you want to have a discussion about the, you know, uh, you know, Louis CK or whatever, just only talk about him as a comedian. People just, they're not, that's not how it works. So and OJ Simpson is a, a you know, like a, uh, a, a very obvious example of this dichotomy. Well, it's like it's like what Quentin Tarantino had to endure, you know, his first few movies, even going into the two thousands, about you know, why do you like making violent movies? You know, are you yourself like a violent person? Yeah, I mean, although you know, the thing about OJ, though, one last thing I'll say is, I do wonder what would happen if OJ died. There's an autopsy, and he had like over-the-top CTE. Mm-hmm. That would then, so then, you know, you get in these little kind of infighting worlds where it's sort of like, well, okay, so are you, are, are, are you, are you, are you blaming the victim now, even though he killed people? It's like, you know, it's a strange deal. I would, uh, I, I, I don't think OJ has CTE or at least not serious CTE, but it would be fascinating if it turns out that he did. I wonder how that would change our historical memory of this. You know? Do you ever uh, follow him on uh, Twitter or see any of his tweets? No, I see him when they, when somebody's like, I can't believe this happened and kind of retweets them. But I, uh, yeah. 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 I remember a couple of years ago uh, when Patrick Mahomes was really coming onto the scene, he had like a Mahomes wig and had the jerseys like, hello, Twitter world. This is OJ Mahomes. <laughs> well, you know, OJ's in this, this crazy position. I mean, in the sense that, okay. I mean, I don't know. I, I'm certain he's guilty. I'm guessing you think he's guilty. I'm guessing most people listening to this podcast think he's guilty, but he was found innocent. He was found not guilty. Okay. Mm-hmm. So let's imagine for a second that that's true, that, that he was framed or whatever, that he never did any of this. Then the question becomes, how would a person act in that situation? I mean, if everyone in the world thinks you're a murderer and you're not, what do you do? Like, you know, right after uh, he was acquitted, there were a lot of people with like, you should move to Australia and just disappear. Uh, and I, I like that seems like you know the, the reasonable thing to do. But if he was actually innocent, then he'd be like, why do I got to move to Australia? <laughs> like, right. You know, it's like, you know, I mean, that's it, the, the only thing OJ did that in any way makes me think he is innocent is his behavior post the acquittal. Because he doesn't seem to act as though he has any kind of, you know, I mean, he wrote that book where he basically describes how he would have done it. Yes, that's that's a strange deal. But, you know, well, he speaks with like such a conviction that you it makes you wonder if he really does believe he is innocent, even if he did commit the murders. Right. Like, did you ever see that movie Lost Highway? Yes. With the, uh, the Bill Pullman, David Lynch yeah, movie. Yeah. It's like, apparently he got like some sort of uh, inspiration from watching that trial. Well, like here, here's a man who believes he didn't really commit murders, even though he believed OJ to be a murderer. And it's kind of like, you, you kind of wonder, does he in some way rationalize, like maybe it was his body, but it wasn't him doing it. You know, like, did, did, did you sort of like reframe it in your head or have like a blackout period where you sure. can, a plausible deniability? I mean, like, how do you beat a lie detector test? You just got to believe that you're not lying. <laughs> like it's not actually sensing truths or untruths. It's tracking 
uh, you know, does your body show the physiological signs of anxiety and discomfort? So if you actually think you're innocent, you're not lying to a lie detector. Um, I, I think that this is, in truth, on a much smaller scale, an incredibly common thing among it's part of human nature that like that that people will do something lie about it be forced to continually tell the lie but then it becomes so intertwined with sort of their perception of of how they are understood and maybe it changes in their their memory how it was that very quickly that lie that they told actually becomes what they think happened, you know? Yeah. And, and, uh, and I mean, that the OJ situation is just the highest possible scale of that. Yeah. From what you remember, like, was there any blowback that the NFL had from that trial and that whole circumstance? You know, none. I mean, I, I think that uh, there were questions about broadcasting at NBC. Mm. Because I think there was some, there, you know, there, there were some people who were sort of like, if he was beating his wife and all, of, you know, and, and he he had this incredibly violent underside, like how could none of the people he worked with at NBC have a sense of this? Um, but I don't. It, it was very rarely applied to to his football career. I mean, it had been a long time. You know, he made all those Naked Gun movies. He'd done this whole like he'd had a whole second career. Uh, by the time those murders happened. Um, and so, it, like, I think now, if, that, if something like that were to happen, like, you know, even like with Ray Carruth, uh, that was not seen as a reflection of the fact that he was a football player as much as it would be now. I think now, um, you know, uh, there is this idea that, well, okay, like, uh, for like the, the situation with, with, with like the Buffalo Bills and Hamlin that recently happened, you know, it's like, I think that there was a lot of, of questions over like, well, uh, was this a freak accident that could have happened anywhere that could have happened to him if he, you know, like on the street or was it a necessity that he got, you know, had this cardiac arrest because he was playing football at the time. And it seems as though that, that, that this is not something that we're arguing about in public, you know, like, like I really like, I, you know, you're, you're, you're watching this thing happen on Monday night and you're wondering what's going to happen to this guy and all this stuff, you know, and you know, it's terrible. Uh, And then you also wonder, it's like, like, so how is this going to be seen uh, in terms of, uh, you know, like, particularly by people who already don't want football to exist. Right. You know, it's, it's a, and, and you don't want, you know, people say like, Oh, you shouldn't think about that. It shouldn't be, you know, it's, it's just a crazy deal. It's like, say, so the, the day it happens, you know, every broadcaster, every journalist pretty much is saying like, we're not even thinking about football now. We're not even thinking about this game. We're not, you know, this is just, we're not even thinking about this. We're just worried about this one guy. But then, by Wednesday, I turn on the radio, and all they're talking about is, are they going to make this game up? Uh, where, where would they? You know, it's sort of like so. It's just people are so paralyzed by the moment and what they feel like. 
I guess they're supposed to say. Like you know, like you 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 listen to those people on Monday night, you just assume that they were almost saying like, "That's it for me. Football's over. I'll never right. think about it again." And then it was like two days. It, it all had switched again, and you knew. And 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 the weird thing is, is everyone knew that was going to happen. Yeah. Like everybody watched. Like like no one actually watched that, thinking that what they're saying now is going to be the same thing that they expressed two days later. Plus, you know, it's like. You know, like the week before, like I think 25 people had died in Buffalo because of a blizzard. Right. So it was like, you know, so I mean, could you argue that that should have justified the game not happening? I mean, the community was obviously really deeply impacted by that. It's it, it is a it is just it's it's strange to sort of see people try to react to everything in the present moment and then figure out a new way to be in the present moment after it has passed. Yeah, it's like one big simulation, you know. Yes, <laughs> like a zero, yes. like a Xerox of a Xerox. Okay. So, like in the NFL in the 1990s, I mean, like how would you sort of describe the identity? You know, like what do you think makes it unique from the other decades of uh, NFL football? Well, you know, personally, uh, this is maybe a strange thing to say, but the 90s were uh, one of my less favorite decades of, pro, of football. Like, you know, I love the seventies, love the eighties. I've loved the previous 15 years. I kind of feel like 1990 to 2005 was, um, you know, maybe a kind of a, a, a less thrilling period for football. I mean, I watched all the games. It wasn't like I wasn't watching them, but uh, you know, cause things had changed so much in 1978 when they changed the passing rules, you know, when they let linemen extend their arms, when they changed, they took away them, you know, the, the kind of the Mel Blunt rule came in. Also. And then, so you saw that in the 1980s, there was this strange, you know, escalation, not strange at all, predictable escalation in passing where, you know, in the past, we'd only had one guy throw for 4,000 yards in a year Then Fouts does it twice. And then all of a sudden everyone is doing it. We kind of move into the 90s, and there was a little bit normalization of that. Like, um, like pro football kind of normalized from sort of the switch in the 80s. Uh, and uh, it was a, you know, I, I, it's in the book, you know, I read about baseball. And a lot of people asked me, they were like, well, you're a big football fan. You're a big basketball fan. You know, why did you write about baseball? And to me, the 90s were when baseball sort of uh, became this thing where the past mattered more than the future. Mm. Um, and even though baseball in the middle 90s was still treated kind of as a sport that was as popular as football, even though that had not been true since the early 70s. But baseball had this historical legacy that there was still like a cultural memory of the past that made baseball seem like a serious game for serious people. And football was still uh, kind of understood as this kind of more barbaric thing. I mean, like I, like I mentioned, like, you know, there's the famous like George will quote, you know, George will loves baseball. And he says like, you know, football represents, you know, the worst things about America. It's like violence kind of interrupted by committee meetings, you know, mm -hmm. that's like, that's um and I think that that seems to be gone. I mean, there's no one now who sees any sport in America on par with football. The most popular sport in America is pro football. The second most popular sport is college football. And there's a pretty big drop off. Now, the 90s for college football, that was, a, you know, that was, a, uh, I think, kind of an, almost an awkward time. Because, you know, you, you, you have 
some very strange national champions. You have like Georgia Tech and Colorado splitting the national championship one year. And that, you know, Georgia Tech was unranked before we even got into the season. Colorado is not really a traditional power. Mm-hmm. We had a bunch of situations where Nebraska was involved where two teams seemed like they should be the national champion. They didn't play each other. And Tom Osborne was retiring at one point. He seemed to have won a coach's bowl because of it. And it, it, it seemed as though that, that the kind of the argument that had always been part of college football, sort of the unknown part, which I always loved. I mean, it was always something to talk about when there was nothing else to talk about. Somehow the idea of that conversation over who's actually the best team, um, the way society had changed and the way people had changed made that kind of conversation less acceptable. And that people were just not willing to sort of have this vague abstraction, this mythical national champion. And then you know, so they add the BCS game and, you know, Tennessee wins the first one. We kind of, that works okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, it wasn't perfect. There were years, I remember one year Auburn was undefeated. And they didn't get to play, but they were certainly the third best team that year. So it made sense, but it wasn't until the playoff, but the trouble with the playoff is, even though the games are great, or at least the, semifinals were this year um it does make college football more like pro football and i don't love that i don't think anyone does well the chapter or the section of your book where you write about that is called the power of myth you know kind of talking about that pre-bcs era college football where there was no i guess universally accepted national champion um, and, and it, but that makes me also wonder too, like, do you think that the BCS era and by virtue of that, the playoffs, do you think that has sort of created the sense of apathy in parts of the country where college football used to just be so popular? Well, I don't know about that because in the places where college football is most popular, it doesn't seem like it has lost any traction. I mean, you go to the southeast of the united states or you go to texas or you know parts of the midwest and they're you know they're there it doesn't seem like i mean football college football has always been somewhat regional i think the what well a game like i feel i mean the, the thing that i i fear could generate the kind of apathy actually is the transfer portal the transfer portal right and some of this nil stuff because you know, you this really happened in college basketball that when players, you know, when they went to the whole one and done system, uh, it just became this thing where where you you you, you had not only you have no relationship with the players, it's like you didn't really know who they were, and in fact, you expected a team to be better if you didn't know them. Sure. Like if if if, if Kentucky's playing Purdue. And Purdue starting four seniors and a junior, and Kentucky starting five freshmen. Everybody knows who's winning that game, or who's gonna, you know. And there's there's a sense of that now with college football in a way. Like, I mean, I I like the idea of of Deion Sanders being in Colorado. Like, I'm really fascinated to see what will happen there. But I mean, what he seems to be openly doing is saying like, we're a business. This is a professional organization. Mm-hmm. You come here. We're going to get you the NFL. We're going to get you NIL deals. That, that that seems to be the whole thing. And I know that there's this idea that, like, I don't know. It, there's been a change in sports writing where 
a lot of young sports writers really want to write about things that are outside of sports, you know, things like labor. Okay. okay. And they want to look at sort of the college athlete as uh, an extension of like the labor movement. Is this person being justifiably compensated for what he's doing or whatever? And, and you know, it, 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 it's, it's a di- it's not the same as other jobs. Like sports are different from culture for a whole bunch of reasons. One of which is sort of, um, you know, what we understand it to mean to be complicit in, in these sports, you know? And I, I don't know if what was, you know, if it was a draconian limitation to make it difficult for a college athlete to leave his school. Yeah. You know, and and granted, it would be like, well, a coach could leave and get paid. And it's like, you know, that's true. It's kind of unfair. And there's some unfairness in everything. I think what you always got to think about, though, is the overall health of the sport. And I do worry that some of the things that we have done, which are certainly better for individuals, is going to be negative for the collective you know that 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 in that college football as we understand it is just not going to exist in 10 years well and i think that point kind of you know ties into the question that i was getting at where it was like um obviously like the southeast is very big for college football right obviously the other certain parts of the midwest are still as big you know you know for me like a rider like usc ucla who both had good seasons this year i don't think would got the national attention that it would have 20 years ago and i kind of wonder like if those nil deals still like will make people go to one geographic region of the country and like to your point still create this sense of uh apathy maybe in parts of the country like the west or the mountain west where like all right well the best athletes are going east why should we even care anymore you know because like sometimes uh, sometimes like i'll watch like a cbs game like 11 o'clock at night it's like new mexico and there's no one at the game whereas like in years past they would have had you know good turnout even though they knew they weren't as good as like some of the bigger programs that is strange. It, it was, you know, it is weird to say like you start, you know, watching Maction or whatever. And sometimes it's like, God, there's nobody there. It's like Tuesday. And it's like, we're, you know, I mean, granted the kids have got school the next day and maybe it's not like they didn't go to ball state because the football team was good or whatever, you know, yeah. it is weird. You know, uh, but part of that though, is just because we've seen all these games. I mean, I like, okay, I'm 50, so I'm old, but I'm not ancient, but I do think that it is just wild that when I was a little kid, there was one or two college football games a week to see. You could, I mean, there, there was a game on ABC, and then there would be maybe a game on CBS, and that was it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you, you look back, you know, now, you know, they used to be like, you know, what, the Heisman or whatever. You know, they'd be like, oh, it's a real disadvantage to being, you know, um, on the West Coast. You know, people don't see your games, you know. And I never really believed that, but now that I see how easy it is to to access these things, it does make me almost have a better understanding of how strange it must have been to be a Heisman voter who lives in Washington D.C. Like you know, it's like you just would not have seen all these players. Um, and uh, but there was I don't know there was there was a there was a mysterious aspect of that. You know, it's like I, I, that I kind of like it was. 
somehow it's like you still understood what was going on, even though you didn't see it. Now the thinking has changed so that if you're not seeing it, well, then you must not care. Right. Um, uh, it, uh, it's, it's, it's odd. I mean, there's, you talk about like a New Mexico game and they'll be like empty and, you know, and then you watch, you know, any SEC game. Of course, there's 115,000 people there, but that's, you, of course, it should be that way. Um, I just, uh, I don't know. I, 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 so much of my life has involved college sports. Right. You know, and I just, you know, when I, and, and when I was a, a little kid, so I had two older brothers and my dad. And if there was a pro game on and there was a college game on in basketball, there was no way we were watching the program. There's just no way. It was like they, they didn't consider that to be as meaningful. We, you know, the, the, the games on Saturday, the football mattered more than the games on Sunday. It, it, it kind of felt like that's how it always was, that when you were a little kid, you liked pro sports, and you kind of grew into and matured into somebody who followed college sports. Um, and now hmm. it's just everything is pro kind of, it's like, like college seems like pro. Yeah. Like, like it, it's, it, it, the game is different. And I still love watching college football because of the way the game is played, but the, like, like, you know, uh, the idea that like, like you wouldn't play in a bowl game because it's not a playoff game. I, I mean, of course that makes sense for the guy, but that it kind of makes the whole thing seem silly it, it almost undersides like a sense of tradition in a way well that be I mean, that yeah but yeah. some people might say good like some people like the thing about tradition is a lot of people don't like it right a lot of people don't like like it's weird to say i don't like tradition but a lot of people don't like traditional things they see yeah. tradition as like a vestige of when things were worse and they want things to change um it just seems odd to me that to that you know that that the the that that we sort of now look at college or look at or you know we look at a, a player playing in college and it's like well um uh he's doing this just to become a pro athlete and if he can't do that like it, it doesn't really that's I mean, it's it's just disappointing i mean it's understandable because as a like okay, so I majored in journalism in college. If after my freshman year, if you know the New York Times or the Washington Post had said we want to pay you a ton of money to be a journalist for us now, of course I would have done it. So why do I see this as different? Right. Well, the reason I see it as different is because there are things that are involved with sports that give it its that kind of give it an that give it meaning, you know, that are not like regular jobs. I mean, sports are a thing that like an 80 year old guy can like and an eight year old girl can like, and it's supposed to be that way. Um, and it's just, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to be optimistic about the future of sport. I mean, yeah. I keep trying, but it's hard. Yeah. From a business perspective to go back to the NFL, what would you say was Paul Tagliabue's lasting legacy as a commissioner? Huh? Well, so Pete Rozelle is probably the best commissioner any sport has ever had. So Agreed. that's a hard person to follow, right? Mm -hmm. um, like, uh, well, you know, I, I, that's a great question. Give, give me, throw some options at me. Let me, let me, I'm trying, I'm trying to think of uh, off the top of my head and I'm not coming with an answer. So tell me some of the things you think and I'll, and I'll gauge them. 
Well, unlike Roselle, I think he was definitely a lot more lenient towards franchise relocation. Yeah, that's true. Because for, for Pete, yeah. it was like the worst thing imaginable because in a lot of ways it could alienate fan bases. Whereas with this, it was sort of like almost something that was encouraged or maybe not encouraged is the, maybe the wrong thing, but I think he was definitely proactive. Um, I, I don't know. I shouldn't say proactive, but I think he was allowing it to happen. Well, yeah, I mean, he, Roselle's position seemed to be, I don't care what your argument is for why you want to leave Baltimore and go to Indianapolis or why. Right. Well, I mean, also, you know, he's like, I don't care what the argument is. It's like, that's, that's where you are. But now here again with Roselle, would, did his position kind of calcify because of Al Davis? Yeah. Like, you know, like if it, if it had been a, if it had been a different owner, if it had been Art Modell going to Roselle saying, I want to move or whatever, would he have seen that differently than the way he saw uh, Al Davis, who he felt was trying, you know, still had a grudge because of the AFL and was trying to undermine the league. So he kind of really, you know, got in that position. Teams moving in general. I mean, that's a, uh, uh, we kind of talk about it less because we just accept it now. Like, you know, it was, I mean, it took me a long time to quit saying Los Angeles Rams when they moved to St. Louis. And it seemed like just when I got used to it, they moved back, Yeah, you know, or like, I don't, I don't know if I ever said Los Angeles Raiders. I think I said Oakland Raiders the whole time they were there. Uh, I still say San Diego Chargers, you know, but I'm, but I'm like, that's the kind of person I am. I'm sort of things like this. Um, The, uh, uh, to me, it's just sort of like a uh, – uh, it, it, it's interesting to think like in, in a sense, a team changing cities because the situation is better. In your mind, uh, you almost think, well, that seems to suggest um, a league and a bunch of franchises who are in trouble. You know, like when like the when the New Orleans Jazz moved to Utah or whatever, it's like we can't. You know, but of course, the NFL that's not the case. Yeah, there's like it's like the the NFL is like it's one of the situations almost like it's gotten so liberal it became conservative or or vice versa. It's like there's so much money now potentially on the table for an NFL franchise that like it justifies doing these things because it's like a uh, it 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 it. Kind of screws up the lives of thousands of people and sort of makes the product seem confusing and all this stuff. But it's like you can't pass up that much money. Um, yeah, I mean that's a good that's a good point. I mean, Tagliabue did sort of, uh, I guess, eh, I mean, foster might be the word. Like yeah. he just he seemed to see it as a reasonable request. Sure. And I think something else that I don't know if it's a lasting legacy, but it was something that was a cool experiment was NFL Europe. Mm. I guess at the time it was the World League of American Football because, and then it migrated into NFL Europe. And that was cool because I think a lot of the players, it's like, you know, they'll describe it as like the best experience of their life, but also the worst because, you know, they're away from their family. They're pretty much regarded as like the scrubs of a team, but also, you know, they get to travel to a whole new place and play a game they love. So that was kind of a unique experience or a unique chapter in the league. It is. Uh, I kind of have a strange position on this. I mean, like, you know, uh, I I kind of like the idea that football is purely an American thing. 
And that seems like a jingoistic thing to say, but that's not why I say that. Like, I'm not, I'm not saying that, like, uh, you know, I, uh, I, 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 I think that it's a, uh, it's an example of, you know, American exceptionalism or any of these things. But I think the idea of trying to expand football uh, to Europe and, you know, I mean, it gets work to some degree in Germany. That's really the only European country that seems to have interest in it. I guess a little bit of England. But, you know, when you, when, they was, when we play a game in London, it seems like a lot of the people in the stands are Americans living over there. Um, I just think that, you know, like imagine if we found out or if it was the case that, oh, in Spain – they had some unique, strange sport that's only played in Spain, and it's the most popular thing in Spain. And a bunch of their culture, a bunch of Spanish culture is built around it. Not soccer, but some other sport right. that's only there. You know, I think we'd find that charming. I think it'd be one of those things that when you go to Spain, you'd want to go see, you know, Spain ball or whatever the heck it's called. Like, you know, like I think it would be seen as kind of this this kind of interesting that you could understand things about Spanish culture through this one unique obsession the country has. I feel like that's what football is in the United States. I feel like that you can understand a lot about what makes America different, not necessarily exceptional, mm -hmm. but different from other places through our relationship to football and the fact that our most popular game is a game that's really only played here. So I understand why the NBA wants to expand. I mean, it's like basketball is a worldwide sport in the Olympics. It's like there, there, there's a lot of reasons why someone in China might want to watch an NBA game. I don't think that it is that necessary or important, um, and perhaps even in a weird way, somewhat detrimental it could be, to, to sort of say that we're trying to make football a thing that the world is supposed to care about. Um, so I, I, I actually think that, you know, that there is, like we talked about college football being regional. I like that quality about college football. Right. You know, I like the fact that, like, uh, you know, the quarterback at Ole Miss is, like, maybe the most famous guy in Oxford, Mississippi. Yeah. And, like, it, it, nobody gives a shit elsewhere. It's like, I think that's cool in a way. You know, I, I like I, – I think maybe it might have to do with my, you know, like my relationship as a music writer where it was, it was always fascinating to find a subculture – that seemed to be treating what it did as, you know, like kind of the vortex of its world. And it had no meaning outside of that. So the idea of football being only an American thing, I think is actually to, to football's merit. Like I, I, I'd like that. Uh, so I guess I, you know, uh, uh, the, the idea of trying to expand to other countries, I mean, uh, you know, didn't really work and, and and i understand why because football is also a hard game to understand if you know nothing about it <laughs> right soccer easily translatable yeah you can just figure it out i mean if my son is you know nine and and it, you know if, if if there's some sports i can put it on and he can kind of figure it out but when, when he's trying to watch football it's like all he has is question after question after question mm -hmm. and like you know um when i'm answering them it's almost like when you're teaching, you know, like, like you know, they, they always say that the hardest language to learn is English because there's so many words, there's so many homonyms and so many times that the rules are broken. And that's exactly how explaining football is. It's like yeah. 
there it's it's really hard to to give someone a quick tutorial of it but then it's also probably the subject that the most people in in the united states have an expert knowledge of i mean that's like you know i always find it fascinating if i'm in an airport you know i can sit like at the chili's airport and some guy will sit down some random person and there's a million things we could talk about but the likelihood that we start talking about football and this guy can talk about it as well as the people on the screen in front of us who are lecturing us about like the matchups this week is incredible to me. Right. Like, you know, it, it is. It, it, and that's a thing that, that only happens here. Like, you know, everywhere else in the world, it's soccer. Okay. So they all share it. But in the United States, we don't share it. We just have it. And I, I totally get that appeal of it too. But I, I think for me, the novelty of it being played in a country, um, and, you know, in a foreign country to us, is so fascinating. Because like I'm a big fan of uh, football in Japan, and that's something that has a pretty deep history going back to the 30s before the even before the NFL had even laid eyes on it. Um, and a part of it, I think, is just because you know when you take time to kind of look at like the countries that do take it seriously, right. They fall in love with the strategy, the X's and O's, you know, they understand like why those, you know, quote unquote meetings have to take place between plays because you're talking about so many in-depth assignments that you have to convey. And and it's just cool to me to see like, you know, parts of the world that, and maybe I like it because it's a niche. I don't know, maybe if I'd ever wanted to get as big as it is here, but it it is kind of cool. I think to see other cultures, like try to pick it up and see if they can run with it and try to make it their own. If that makes sense. Well, no, what I guess this backs up your point. What would be interesting to me is I feel like, like I haven't watched any. I know they play football in Japan. I haven't watched any of it. For some reason, I suspect that they might have offensive and defensive and special team philosophies that are completely alien to ours. Mm-hmm. That they, you know, that they that that it might be something that they would see in a way that we just like you know uh, almost can refuse to see because we're so comfortable. Sure. Yeah. I mean, you know. Um, do you watch much Canadian football? Uh, not much, but here and there. Yeah. I always think it's it's interesting that, like, you know, the idea of three downs, I totally understand why they would say we're going to use three downs instead of four because they're, like, the most exciting parts of football or passing, right? So why add sort of the possibility that some team can just, like, run off tackle three times in a row or whatever? But as time has moved on, that's got to be something Canadians admit. We fucked that up. We should not have went with three downs because it's not. It damages the game. It makes the game seem goofy. And like you know, it, it just it doesn't. It's it 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 see like if you, if you throw an incomplete pass on first down, everybody knows you got it. It's like yeah, all you can run are draws. I wonder if like you know if, if the if if the people who sort of like you know founded the Grey Cup, who I'm sure are dead because of older than the Super Bowl, but like if we could go back and bring them to life if they'd been like, yeah, we should have used four downs. It yeah. probably would have been better. Well, I think, I think even then, like the great cup was like Fanta when they were, they even have a forward pass, right? Like it was still just laterals. <laughs> I probably. Mean. I mean, it's like seven, it's like eight and seven. I don't, well, I don't know the forward, I mean, the forward pass in America starts like 1905. Oh, Six. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I don't think the Grey Cup predates that. Well, Canadian football didn't adopt a forward pass until a decade later, I believe. Maybe really? even later. Okay. Yeah. Well, maybe I'm speaking. Maybe I'm maybe I'm speaking out of my hat. I don't know. Well, it's something. Do you ever have you ever seen six man football? Well, yeah. You know, I played nine man in high school. My oh, dad really? played. My dad played six man. 
That's awesome. Um, yeah, that's, but that was back in the 30s, you know? Yeah. Uh, you see Six Man sometimes. I don't know if they still play it in Texas. Do yeah, they, they still, do. They still do. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, because like in some states have eight man. Um, but, you know, it's so funny. So I played nine man. Because my school had, you know, like 80 kids in our school. My town is 500 people, you know. And at the high school level, nine-man football, in some ways, at least during the 80s, um, had a real advantage because it was a more wide-open game. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, you know, playing in North Dakota in the 80s, you watch, like, the, the bigger schools play, the 11-man schools. Like, very limited offense, hardly any throwing, kind of between the hash marks, just power football, wishbone, all that stuff. But, you know, nine man, you got same number of eligible receivers. You're just taking off the tackles. And um, it's a pretty wide open game. Now, when I see nine man, like when I go home to, say, visit my family and I see like the, the like the nine man football championship. Now, it seems more like schoolyard football yeah. because they have all these split out guys. And it's just it's it doesn't it, you know, it seems kind of fake. But everything, you know. When, when you play nine man, if I met a kid who played 11 man, you know, like from a bigger school, they would like laugh, like nine man's not real. Like, oh, what's that, you, know? you know, and I'd be like, oh, no, no, it's the same. It's all this, you know. But then if I meet someone who played eight man football in Wyoming, I'd be like, that's not a sport. You can't play like whatever, anything smaller than you <laughs> seem absolutely crazy. Yeah. I, it seems to me like six man might be actually a good way to like introduce American football to like other countries because. I think it captures the like essence of what the game is, right? It's like, it's a lot of forward pass. It's having uh, two different platoons going at each other at the same time. Um, But you also have like a lot of fluidity and it provides like a little bit of an introduction to the game that they can kind of learn from there. Well, that's, that's a good idea. Although it's, you said an interesting thing. You said it kind of has the essence of football. Mm -hmm. What do you, what do you argue is the essence of football? I'm a firm believer that in order for a sport to be a football variation, you need to have a line of scrimmage and the ball can't be projected past the line of scrimmage more than once. Yeah, I, I went back before I did this podcast. I went back. You did an entire episode on the line of scrimmage. It's mm-hmm. an interesting sort of hard point. Like this is like this is a real thing for you. You're like a line of scrimmage historian. Well, see, for me, because you know, there's a lot of people – and this kind of goes into like spring football. It's like, you know, the USFL, the XFL. I, I think a reason why a lot of them fail is maybe like in excess and burnout from the NFL season. But I also think it's because I feel like at times you're just watching a carbon copy of the rule book, right? And see, yes. for me, like I would absolutely love to see a league that says, hey, we can have five men on the line of scrimmage instead of seven. Um, and, you know, you can play with the rules a little bit saying, hey, you know, the two people lined up on the line of scrimmage next to the center are ineligible but maybe you can get some wonky formations where you have like someone who's lined up you know off the center's heel but the guy on the line of scrimmage is still next to him and he's still ineligible right you can almost yeah well no that's yeah well that uh that's that's an interesting i, I mean that's probably i think you're making a real good argument i mean well, what is interesting to me is that when people talk about the essence of football what, like what is the essence of football mm-hmm. i always think that it actually is closer to almost that primitive era of football where it is in a weird way a simulation of war okay Mm. like you know it's 
I mean, I, 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 I've, I've mentioned this many times. I always wonder if this is a bit apocryphal, but there's this belief that the reason college football came into existence is because the Civil War had ended, and a lot of people were like, well, our kids aren't going to fight in a war. How are they going to become men? It's yeah. like they don't, they're, they're not going to know what it's like to kill anyone. <laughs> so, so, they, so they invent college football as a way to sort of simulate the experience of fighting war. Now, you, people hate when you use terminology like that. It seems real, you know, they, like they like disrespectful. Weird, yeah, yeah, disrespectful and also like seem to glorify the thing that we're trying to remove from the game or whatever. But I always think that the essence of football is the fact that, um, how can I describe this? Okay, so played, I played basketball in high school. And my whole life after high school, I could simulate playing basketball. Mm -hmm. You can play basketball by yourself, and it's a pretty good simulation of basketball. You can play a pickup game, and it's real fun. It can be real competitive. Play baseball when you're young. Play softball when you're older. It's kind of the same. You run track in high school, you'll still be a runner later. You can't simulate football. You really can't. Like, you can throw the ball around with your friends. You can get seven guys together and you can play flag football and all that stuff. But the way football in reality works, it can only happen in this kind of very kind of organized thing because you're wearing all this equipment and it's, you need a lot of practice time and it's just, you can't play a casual recreational game of football that in any way seems like regular football. And part of the essence of that is that there is no, um, that even when you're just a high school kid, there is, I don't know, I, I guess in a way, an element of risk and danger with the thing that you're doing. Like you can't go half speed in football or you will get hurt. Mm -hmm. Like if you're, if you're playing a basketball game and you're up, by 40 points and it's the end of the game you can kind of you know, take your foot off the gas and play half speed and it doesn't really matter if you're playing a football game and you're way ahead of your opponent and you decide to relax they might not be relaxing and then you're going to be you know and so i really do think that the essence of football is built in the physicality and in many ways like what you say at the line of scrimmage and the idea of you know, the open field collision. Now, I, here again, I hate saying these things because it seems to be just so antithetical to everything we're trying to do. But like you, do you what, what is your position on the removal of kickoffs from the game, which is clearly they're going to happen? Uh, for me, I don't want to see that because it's one of the most exciting plays that you can have in the sport. Um, now, obviously, there are... Um, drawbacks to having it in the game in terms of an injury standpoint but from what i've understood i mean like obviously i think they removed the um the rule that you can't lock hands if you're the offensive lineman to have that wedge i mean could, could you still have that rule in place but also keep the kickoff as it was before then well you see i i i, don't, I have a friend of mine who always he thinks i'm crazy for like acting like this is a problem he's like you know you can remove the kick most kick you know most of the time now at the nfl level the kickoff is just a touchback mm -hmm. you know i yeah. mean it's like i'm surprised there haven't been more teams who have experimented i think the patriots are the only team who kind of has with kicking the ball unusually high to sort of you know because i think teams are are less um 
uh, less interested actually in setting up a return. You yeah. know, um, you know, uh, I, but it's a bummer to me that somebody like you know, like you know, Devin Hester or whatever that's like that. Mel, all these guys, you know, Rick Upchurch or Mel Gray, all these guys. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's weird to think that that's just going to be gone. Desmond Howard. Um, you know, yeah, yeah, you know, and the the you know, but but that the 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 collision, like when you're when you're a young kid and they could tell you it's like football is not a physical sport. Basketball is a physical sport. Mm-hmm. Football is a collision sport. I remember learning that when I was like in third grade, and I was like, that's true and that's crazy and that's you know strange you know um of course i don't want guys getting hurt of course i don't want guys dying or whatever but i don't know it's like a, a i i do think that the essence of football is contact mm-hmm. so a lot of what you're saying is actually sort of to accentuate the more watchable aspects of it and it's probably smarter especially if you're trying to expand it to other people i don't know if I, I, I don't know if, if future generations will be attracted to a sport that is physical. I think just on moral grounds, you know? Well, this is actually a, something I talked about with um, another guest, Michael Oriard, who I think you may have uh, met or have worked with at some point on the college football documentary from yeah, ESPN. Um he he's written a lot over the years about, you know, the violence in football and can it survive, especially in the concussion era. But I, I do think that there is a sort of like pivot in people's fascination with football that goes beyond violence and more toward the towards the artistry of the game, right? I mean, like you talked about earlier about Doug Peterson, um, you know, finding a lot of plays on Twitter and that's like the best resource. For me, like, you know, maybe it's just the people I follow, but I also think there's just a general fascination with the fan bases now seeing these creative plays and a lot of it has to go with how like youtubers are breaking down you know schemes and offenses and how you're finding a lot of these cool trick plays i I think there's a certain artistry to the game now that a lot of people are drawn to more so than maybe back in the 60s where pretty much you lined up in a split backfield and you had you know maybe a two dozen plays at your disposal that all looked like they were going to end in a mesh absolutely but i do wonder about this though is the key to that that kind of artistry and sort of intelligence and intellect placed in the context of which football is what makes this great. You know what I'm saying? It's like, you know, I, 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 you know, I, I bet I just can tell from talking to you, you're probably like this. Like when I was a little guy, you know, I was always drawing football plays on my note. I had notebook after notebook after notebook of football plays I have drawn, you know, so I was, this has yeah. always been something I was into. But it's the fact that these things are placed into this, I mean, I just got to use the language, like this violent paradigm where sometimes the mind suddenly doesn't matter. I mean, that's what's so interesting about it. I, 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 when, I was, I, when I was a kid, I was in this, this thing called the NFL Super Pro Club. Okay. And one of the things you got was this book, and it was called like the Illustrated NFL Playbook. And it had all this information about you know, different offensive schemes, and defensive schemes, and all of these things. And then at the back of the book, there was like discussions with like Bill Walsh and you know, you know, uh, 
you know, uh, you know Sid Luckman, all these guys. You know, I remember one quote in that book was that the guy was like, you know, you can scheme and scheme and scheme and draw and study and watch film and all this, but you can't make guys disappear. Like, there's no offensive set you're going to mm-hmm. create. There's no offensive formation you're going to set that's going to eliminate the fact that there's going to be the same number of guys on the other side. And if they physically dominate you, like the best, like the, the, the best design play is going to collapse. And that's sort of what I, I guess is so fascinating about it. It's like, you have these guys who are like these, like these brilliant, almost mathematicians designing things uh, like in a hailstorm, right? Because it's like, you know, like a, I, it might even be in that in that 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 NFL top hundred player thing. Um, uh, somebody's talking about Lawrence Taylor at some point, or maybe it's like in the Sports Century Lawrence Taylor, and the guy says like, "Well, you know, uh, Lawrence Taylor could do two things: You'd screw up your offense, kill your quarterback. That's the whole. That's the whole. That's the whole goal of defense. Uh-huh. It's like he can screw up what you want to do and destroy your best player." And it's almost like there was no, there was nothing the Redskins or the Cowboys or the Eagles or any of these teams could do that could eliminate the fact that there was an individual who could, uh, you know, take these brilliant, you know, Tom Landry was a genius. And, you know, it's like Joe Gibbons is a genius and like take these things and just annihilate them to pure physicality. So maybe what I should say is like, maybe what I think is the essence of football is not just the physicality of it. It's the combination of physicality with intellect that makes both of those things fragile. Yeah, it's like the artistry of trying to move the ball and the ferociousness of trying to stop it in a way. Yes. Yeah, yeah that, that's well said. Do you have time for a couple of rapid fire questions? Sure. Cool, man. Okay, first one, this actually kind of goes to what we were talking about earlier, but um, do you think that the best Cowboys team of the 90s could go toe-to-toe with the best team of today? Well, here again, if, if, if we're using the time machine, no. Like, if we just take, say, the 1992 or 94 Cowboys and just put them with a the team now, I, I don't think so. I think that if you gave the players on that Cowboys team the same opportunities to mature and evolve and live through the things mm-hmm. that, say, the Kansas City Chiefs players have lived through or the Bengals players have lived through um, – then I think that uh, they probably would win. I, I think that that uh, from a you know those Cowboys teams had so much speed on defense. You know, I mean, because that was Jimmy Johnson's thing, like build for speed. Every one of those guys, if born in 1998 or whatever, would be faster than they were. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it would be a, a you know. You, you you look back, you know, we look at Troy Aikman or whatever, you know, and, and statistically, he doesn't even seem like a Hall of Famer. We all know he was, though, because we watched. Yeah. So if he gets to play now, I, I, I think that he's a top five quarterback. So I, I would say if they had the same experiences, then yes. See, a, a guy, it feels like that offensive line, as big as they were, and I'm sure. not sure what the average weight, but I, I think like a Larry Allen could hold his own today against like an Aaron Donald. Plus, and like, yeah, and like, would he be like, would he be more cut now than he was then? He might be. I right. mean, it's like, I, 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 it's, you know. 
Yeah. Do, do you also think, and this is sort of a side question, what about like the 2004 Patriots? Like since that was like a decade later, do you think that the same rules would have to apply or do you think maybe training as they were and coached as they were, they could still put up a good fight? Well, I mean, here again, it's just like, because I, I don't want this to be taken out of context, but like, I, okay, so we're, we're seeing these teams have the same, they have the same opportunities. They're raised the same way, same nutrition, same weight training, all that stuff. I do think a lot of teams from the past would have an advantage if for no other reason, there were fewer teams. Sure. Yeah. So, so you, you know, you were able to, to put together a deeper roster, um, you know, and um, uh, there was a, you know, a, you, you often, you often see this now where, you know, a team will overpay a quarterback and they feel like they got to do it. They mm. got to do it. And then, you know, and then they maybe sign the receiver too. And all of a sudden they have no depth at secondary and they have, you know, they have all these flaws. They have, they have no depth uh, at guard or all these things. That was less of a problem in the past. It was easier to put together a roster of guys who were uh, sort of on par with their peers. Um, I mean, that Patriots team, you know, like uh, that was, that was the Moss team, right? The team that got, Team went seventeen to one. You're talking about? No, that was no, that was two thousand. That was two thousand seven. Two thousand four is the last time I won the Super Bowl. Yeah. But I mean that yeah. that team might even be more applicable. Yeah, I mean to me that was that was the best of their teams, the yeah. one that could be. Um, and uh, you know, uh, uh, I, I, it's a that's I mean it's an impossible question, but a fun question. Yeah, no doubt. Um, what is the number one reason for the Bills losing four straight Super Bowls? Well, the biggest reason was that they were you know, playing Dallas for the most part, who was just better. I mean, um, I think that they uh, certainly could have beaten the Giants. I mean, I, I, I think that it is maybe of all his achievements that the thing that impresses me most about Bill Belichick was that his strategy going into that game is we are going to let Thurman Thomas roll up yards. I mean, I just, I would, I, I, that's the kind of thing that you say when you're sitting around. It's like, I think we should just, you know, just let, let him run the ball, but, but, you know, but you can't really do it because you're in one game, right. And it's still football. And it's like the idea that you're going to sort of change your defense to allow someone to have success based on the idea that over a 60 minute game, you'll be in a better position to win at the end. Uh, I think that is really impressive. Like I, that, you know, so uh, um, I think that, you know, they got out man sometimes they got out coach sometimes, you know, do you think there was anything in particular, like in Marv Levy's like coaching philosophy that kind of didn't adjust to what well, he was he was a good coach and yeah. they, you know Kelly was a good player and they just they you know they had good receiving core they they were they were um like a uh, I I think if you take that span of those four Super Bowls and and you move them around in time you move mm -hmm. them back into the 80s or you move forward or whatever and you assume that they're like that level of team during that period I think it is uh likely that they win one you know, gotcha. they came real close. I mean, like missing on a field goal or whatever. It's like that's as close you come. So. Right. Yeah. And, and if and if they and if they hit that, if he makes if Norwood makes that field goal, um, then 
then they're more like the Atlanta Braves of the 90s. You know, the Braves only won one World Series, right. but we think of them as sort of the dominant team from that period. You know? Yeah, it just seems that like the NFC was on such a hot streak from the late 80s all the way up until when Elway, I think, won. Yeah. Well, I it, they, you know, they had they had the they had Dallas and San Francisco, mm-hmm. you know, and prior to that, Washington. So yeah. when you look at when you look at, you know, 1980 through the 90s, you know, and you're saying like, well, what are the what were the, you know, um, you know, five best franchises, I guess you would say Dallas, San Francisco, Washington, Denver and Buffalo. Mm-hmm. Okay? And uh, Denver ends up winning two, losing a bunch. Buffalo lost a bunch, but I mean, I I don't know if it's that reflective on the conferences. Maybe it was. I don't know. Speaking of the Redskins, are the 1991 Redskins the most underrated Super Bowl champion of all time? That's like Mark Rippon's team. Yeah. Um, the most underrated Super Bowl team of all time. Um, I mean, okay. This may seem like a yes, because if you would have asked me about the most underrated Super Bowl team of all time, I wouldn't even thought of them. (laughs) They wouldn't have been one of my candidates. So I guess that might prove that they're underrated. Um, You know, I. uh, uh, The Ravens team with Trent Dilfer. When you think about the fact that like uh, that, you know, he's probably a replacement level quarterback, and yet they were an extremely dominant team. Uh, that you, I, I think they, to a degree, were kind of underrated. I mean, um, kind of going into the past, uh, the Oakland Raider team that won Super Bowl eleven. Mm. You know, that was uh, they got bounced by the Steelers a few times and stuff, but like, uh, like that was that was a really good franchise during that period. Um, the uh, I'm trying think of other ones that are kind of underrated. Uh, the biggest I, reason, I mean, the oh, biggest, well, yeah. Why do you, why 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 does that one stick in your mind? Well, at the time, I think they actually had set the they had a 14 and two record. I think they actually set an NFL record for most points scored in a season at that point. And a few years, I think it was. God, maybe 15 years ago, Football Outsiders had actually done um, like a list of the best champions of all time. And they actually, I think, were maybe number one because they had set so many records. And they had set some records on defense too, but they were just sort of like a one-and-done team with a quarterback that was more or less kind of forgettable in NFL history. I didn't didn't realize that that was the highest scoring team of all time at the time. I guess I didn't know. Yeah. Oh, so uh, just a general 90s question about pop culture. Who had the bigger impact on the 90s pop culture? Kurt Cobain, Seinfeld, or Quentin Tarantino? I would say Kurt Cobain because I feel like that Kurt Cobain sort of uh, um, um, normalized what would become uh, the – almost like the, the emotional atmosphere of the period in the sense that Nirvana was uh, the most important band from the nineties, but not because even so they did musically, but their non-musical significance. And um, the idea that Kurt Cobain 
was the you know the, the biggest artist in the world and his entire aesthetic seemed to be built around his discomfort with that and the idea that he was humiliated to be famous i think feeds into everything that we understand about that period last uh, question i have is that i've heard you say on a another interview that you become a writer when you stop trying to emulate your favorite writers uh, who was that favorite writer for you and when did you stop trying to emulate and therefore become a writer well, you, you, you go through a lot of phases. You know, when I was in high school, I loved Dave Barry, and I wanted to be funny like Dave Barry. And then I go to college, and it's Douglas Copeland for a while is the guy. And then and then Raymond Carver. I think I'm going to be a fiction writer. Why don't you, I want to write like Raymond Carver, these short sentences, this kind of staccato style, these non-events that, that are, are kind of pushed out. Um, and then I get into Mark Lehner for a while. Really love Mark Lehner. It makes it just, I kind of see this kind of kinetic uh, writing style that's really intellectual. And then the last one was David Foster Wallace. That was the last one. Like I read uh, a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again, which is, you know, his nonfiction. It turns out a lot of his nonfiction is actually fiction. But at that time, that was sort of like, this is, this is what I want to be like. This is what I want to do. Um, and then it just started, it was then it suddenly became the idea that like if you're compared to someone, somebody great, you know, it's supposed to be a compliment, but it no longer felt like a compliment to me. I didn't want to. I wanted. I didn't want people to see what I did and somehow be reminded of someone else. And I think that's when you really do become a writer, kind of when the idea of being similar to someone who's even better than you is not compelling because. You know, writing is a creative art form. To be creative, you can't be like someone else. I mean, I I often use this example. It's cliche, kind of, but like, you know, you start a band and someone says to you, like, oh, your band is awesome. You know, you're like Led Zeppelin. Well, that's like only a compliment if you're in a Led Zeppelin tribute band. <laughs> like, it's not, a, it's not a compliment to be like somebody else. Right. You know? Yeah, definitely. Okay, the paperback is out on uh, the January thirty first. Is there one particular place you would encourage everyone to get it? Uh, well, I, no, <laughs> I love it. All right, Chuck, this was a lot of fun. I'm really grateful that you took time. I'm a huge fan of the book. I encourage everyone to read it. Thank you so much for your time. I had a great conversation. Thanks a lot, man. Bye bye.